Okay, good morning, everyone. We're going to, let me get this started from the beginning. We're going to go to Acts 20, 18 through 23. We probably won't get that far, but this is a very, very important section for me personally, because right at this time, I'm coming down the home stretch for research on if I was going to write, which I hope by God's grace to do, what if the church were defined biblically rather than defined by church history? What would that look like? One of the key things, sections that's central to defining a church biblically is the material about Ephesus because we have so much of it. Paul's address here to the Ephesian elders is essential to defining the church biblically as far as what leadership is. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is essential, is ground zero for defining the church, and also the material written to Timothy, who was at Ephesus, is very, very important to defining the church especially 2 Timothy 2 at the very beginning. What is the church? And then from there, there's a lot of other material that we take. But the thing that just does not happen often is that the church is defined in some other way than through the lens of church history. In church history, I want to show you a book and talk about God's providence. This book, written in 1965, The Torch of the Testimony by John W. Kennedy, who was a British scholar, missionary, who wrote this after many years of missions in India in the 1950s and early 60s, written in 64, first published October 1965. Hardly known in the Western world. Well, I bought it. I'll tell you a story about this. In the early 70s, when I became a Christian and I came up here to go to Bible college, there was a little bookstore in South Minneapolis near the Bible. I don't know. It wasn't associated with Bible college. It was called Kingsway. I don't know if anybody else ever heard of it. And I used to go in there and buy books. And the elderly couple that owned the little bookstore, the guy said, Hey, I got a book here I think you'd be interested in, and it was this one. And I bought it, and started, and it was, by the way, the forward's by F.F. Bruce, who's certainly a notable scholar. Well, I, I didn't, I never really read it. And part of the reason I found out lately when I tried to read it, English as used by British people in India in the 20th century is very cumbersome. And at some point, I'll have to share some sentences with you that you wouldn't believe how long they are. And I couldn't, I would always give up. So 50 years later, I finally finished it while Diane was having her surgery, which was about five, five, six hours. And I finally got my mind into how to read it. I've tried to explain to people why it's hard, but then their mind, they say, I don't even know what you're talking about. 
what finally made it possible for me to read it was that start thinking like how the Greek language works, where word order isn't important. But in this case, you're using English in which word order is important, but you're making it constructed as if it weren't. And so that's what this hang-up was. But at the very last chapter, it's amazing, he points to the same thing that I've been thinking all along. He goes through all of church history saying that the real church never was the institutional church. Whatever the institution is that people look at to be church history, there's always some people who actually gather around the Lord, the Word of God, prayer, and the work of the Spirit of regeneration and His work. That's the church, and through much of church history, those people are persecuted by the institutional church. And there's so many evidences of this that's essentially undeniable. And it isn't just Roman Catholicism. Any Whoever's in charge at the time will generally martyr people who believe the truth and just gather simply in, in Christ's name. And the, th the one that really blew me away was the martyrdom of Tyndale. What did Tyndale deserve to be killed for simply translating, because he had the skills to translate from the biblical language, from the Greek, and create a New Testament in English? He was martyred for that. Why? State church, institutional church, civil authority, power, money. And uh, so that's what I've been thinking about this. So here's what I'm asking you, dear saints. When I share things like this, I think this is important. Don't believe it because I say it. Search the scriptures. And if there's a reason to challenge me, I need people to do that. So, for example, I'm going to claim that episkopos is another word for the same, uses for the same people here, elders. They're also called the ones who shepherd the sheep. In church history, episkopos would be the monopiscopate, which would be a single person who's the head over a bunch of different people or churches or levels of authority. And so the first thing I want to do is reject the monopiscopate as being unbiblical because there are no apostles of the same order or stature as Paul or John or Peter today. Now, even that's nowadays challenged, even by those who are not institutional church. I finally, th this book was pretty amazing. There are some things I disagree with as far as the terminology, partly because of how terms are used nowadays. So that's the role. And so I'm going to focus on Acts 20. That's what we're getting to. And 1 Corinthians, I've covered now the material that's the most essential to defining the church. And also the, we finished Ephesians. So what is the church? It's, and the institutions in, in church history were not instituted by Christ. They were created by man in order to control and for whatever reason, whether it's money, money political power, just the love of controlling people and making rules and laws, whatever caused it, 
the institutional church has always persecuted people who actually come to Christ. And in the very beginning of the fellowship I was part of, a lot of people were kicked out of churches for receiving the Holy Spirit. So you got to go. Now, they interpreted it as a second blessing. I interpreted it as conversion. Because some of the churches that kicked them out believed that you were born of God when you were baptized as an infant. So anything beyond that must be an attack against that. And that's part of the reason they were thrown out. So there's where we're going. And um, uh, I don't know. (laughs) May God help us. So let's read this. I'm going to start with verse 17. And if you don't want to listen to me talk about this, I promise to keep going through Acts and 1 Corinthians, no matter what happens. So Acts 20, 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So the first thing we learn here, Miletus is just south of Ephesus, and he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he knows he'll be rejected when he gets there. He called the elders. Now, as he addresses these elders, we're going to pay attention to different terminology that shows up and ask ourselves the question, are there several different groups or are there elders? And if they are elders, then why different terms for their role? Like uh, for the shepherd to flock, to be overseers, or to be older men who care spiritually for the flock. That's the term presbyteros. So you have episcopos, presbyteros, and it's some version of, what is it, poeme? Yeah, poeme. Okay, so here we are. Uh, from He calls for the elders of the church. So last time, I pointed out that Luke, in his style, uses speeches uh, for key people, and those speeches reveal a lot about the theme of Luke-Acts. It starts in Luke with speeches in the mouths of people upon whom the Holy Spirit came. And there are whole groups of people, and it's men and women upon whom the Holy Spirit came, whether it's Mary or uh, Zacharias and so on. And they spoke, and the Holy Spirit spoke. And there was giving a preview of Messianic salvation beyond the scene of history. We find out when we get to Acts, the reason for those speeches of people is to point out that this was all leading not only to the rejection of Christ, which is certainly the theme of Luke, but then the pouring out the Spirit after the ascension, which is showing that Joel 2.28 is being fulfilled. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old man will dream dreams. And the people who are going to be the people of God are going to be people upon whom the Holy Spirit has come, and they speak forth the glorious deeds of God. So that's the theme. So the first uh, of these speeches we covered last time was an address in the synagogue to Jews, and it was in uh, Acts 13, 16 to 41, in Pisidia and Antioch. His second long speech, as recorded by Luke, was to Greeks at Athens, really a key place, the center of Greek culture and learning and philosophy, 
And so that was at Mars Hill in Acts 17, 22 to 31. And so I just want to go through some of the key points that were given there to show the theme. I, I didn't have enough slides for all this. We covered it a while back. So Acts 17, 22. So Paul stood in the midst of Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Unknown would be agnostic. Agnosticos or whatever. I don't have the Greek in front of me. Therefore, you, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So they had various gods, including an unknown one. And so he used that as a starting point to proclaim what God has done, who he is and what he did. So let's start with that. So he said, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. So the first statement to these Greek brilliant philosophers was that there is an eternal creator who made everything in the world out of nothing, all things. He's not, he, he made all things in it. And he's Lord over all. Heaven and earth would be whatever they made of those two realms. And people have written about the different philosophies present and have been before them. The Stoics, the people who followed Plato or Epicurus or whoever it may be. There's plenty said about that. But this would cover whatever they thought about those things. Is he God only of the unseen realm, or is he God over the material realm? He's God over the mind. He's over everything, and he created it. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. You can't confine God to a physical structure. No one's physical structure actually holds God. And now there's even more to be known about that now, which is why I'm interested in defining the church biblically. Is there a holy place on earth where someone can go and be guaranteed they're getting closer to God? No. Is it the Vatican? No. Mormon Tabernacle? Is it uh, a Muslim place? Or No, there's no such place. Uh, yes, sir. I was just wondering, <clears throat> the, the, uh, for the Jewish people, the temple uh, was a place where God resided. That's right, but there was a problem with that. The problem was Ichabod. But even at, at, during the time of the temple, Ichabod means the glory departed. Even at the burning bush where Moses was confronted, at these theophanies, or even in the temple itself, God wasn't totally constrained only to that space. Eric, feel free to comment. But he wasn't, the claim was not that God's here, not anywhere else. But the actual presence was such that the most likely outcome, if you barged in there, would be you would die. 
Okay, and that happened at different times. Go ahead. Yeah, I was thinking of the Shekinah glory. The, the verb Shekinah is where it comes from, the idea of the dwelling presence of God. And it was really there to demonstrate that Israel uniquely had God's favor, but it did not mean that God failed to exist in an omnipresent sense elsewhere. And so we think about in Ezekiel 10 and 11, when God departs his glory from the temple, the symbology there of him going from the temple to the Mount of Olives and ascending is that Israel in their rebellion no longer had his favor. Ironically, Jesus follows that same pattern. Matthew 23, he rebukes the leadership of Israel. Where does he go out to the Mount of Olives? Where and He ends up in the book of Acts ascending from, he is the very glory of God. And so this glory of God, the Shekinah glory, was never designed to refute, as Bob is saying, omnipresence, but to show that they uniquely had his favor amongst right. all the nations. So that didn't mean God wasn't with the Philistines, but he wasn't with them in the saving way that he was in a saving yeah. relationship with Israel. Right. As we pointed out many times, a lot of the terminology has to do with relational matters, not ontological matters. Okay. Uh, relational means having a relationship with God by faith doesn't mean that God spatially exists only inside a person. Although that's the terminology of the Bible, and we should believe it that way, be filled with the Spirit. But it's not God's location is constrained only to certain places. Because omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence, all these things remain true, yes. Well, the real estate agents say location, location, location. But in the sense that we're talking about, this is interesting because the, the stoichia, you talk a lot about the stoichia. And the yeah. whole, Barb and I were talking about this the other day. The stoichia, meaning get, that evil realm had jurisdiction all over the world, right? Well, but the, Israel, the stoichia would be the hostile powers as you Right. But yeah, for Israel, yeah. God says, no, no, hands off of Israel. This is my place, right? So is that yeah, well, when a, they were right with God, think of Balaam. Why couldn't Balaam, who was one of the best cursed persons you could hire, they paid a lot of money for this guy because he was good. Why could he not curse Israel? Because God wouldn't wouldn't let him. Yeah, because they were right with God at the moment. And so he tried, but he kept opening his mouth and blessing them. And he cited it in the New Testament. But Balaam wasn't true because in his heart... He would certainly rather have the money and all the things offered than to bless Israel. So he, according to the New Testament, he figured out a better way for Balak to curse Israel. Offer them idols, women, money. And so they got Israel, he got Israel to curse themselves by doing things God had forbidden. So, okay, so Israel right now is not a real special place to God. It's not like God is, like, dwelling right in Israel right now. But we know that he's going to reign and rule from Jerusalem at some point, you know, in the millennium. Right. The point, Israel is significant because of the promises of God that were given. That's the whole point of Luke Acts. God keeps his promises, including to ethnic national Israel. Now are you restoring the kingdom to Israel. It's not for you to know the epochs and times which God has fixed by his own authority, 
but you should be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. So the time is fixed, but it's not yet. So right but, now... But right now there is an Israel, which is certainly significant, but as Israel now isn't more the dwelling place of God than somewhere else. They are one of the nations, but the promise is still there. So where God is dwelling right now on planet Earth is right inside of us, those who are yeah. saved. He, he dwells in the midst of his people. And uh, I, what I'm going to, we'll go on here, but what I'm going to claim is that the essential truth that we need to know if we're going to define the church biblically is the authority of scripture and the priesthood of every believer. And he rules, Christ reigns, Psalm 110.1, at the right hand of the majesty on high. He, he hears us. We have a relationship with him. And all those who know him have been transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his sons. What we can't seem to get through our corporate Christian minds is that those the transfer of rule isn't a physical location change. It isn't meaning, well, I left this place, I went to that place, or I, instead of going, I used to go to the Legion Hall, now I go to the church. But if you go to some churches, you still have under the B25, have you ever heard that joke? <laughs> yeah, or whatever the, the big... So God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. It's still true. How much of church history is a history of gathering wealth to build temples for God that he never wanted? I'm not saying it's sin to have a building. I'm not saying it's sin not to have a building. But we can gather wherever we can gather. And the church is a people who have a relationship with God. And being out of the domain of darkness means you've repented, you've turned to Christ, you're serving him. It doesn't mean you're no longer on planet Earth. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And the domain transfer is utterly important. I think that should be a, probably a chapter of a book. Now, let's go on. Look at verse 26, if you've turned there, Acts 17, 26. He made from one man every na nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Acts 17, 26. I didn't make slides for this because we covered it before, but this is the second major speech. This one to Greeks, so that's why it's important. Now, this is another biblical doctrine that evangelical Christians get angry when you teach it to them. I've, I've found that for 30 or 40 years. If you're going to teach that God actually can do that, then, then you're going to lose your friends because they b believe that if man is in charge of the destinies of whatever's happening, that's more comforting than to believe that God's actually in charge of history. Now, to me, to have more comfort in the decision-making ability of humans than the sovereignty of God to be able to give people freedom and get us to the right place at the right time, I think that's a massive form of unbelief. But 
I'm just saying that'll probably lose me some more friends. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that point? Why are people angry? Because we, by nature, want to be the masters of our own destiny. And if God determines the appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that means despite people voting for whatever they voted for, we still have whatever is going on. It may be evil. Most of the time, it is evil. Underlying the whole thing is always evil. So a lot of church history is state churches killing believers for confessing Christ. Go back to the martyrdom of Tyndale. Why would you kill someone, hang him, and then burn him? Because he wanted people to have the Bible in their own languages. Why? Because whether you're, at the time there was a battle over whether Rome or England would have charge over the state church, or which state church, or what it would look like, Why? Because the true word of God is always a threat to the power of those who are compromised with the world. The scriptures themselves, knowing the word of God in the common vernacular, will always empower those who believe, cause us to be sanctified. We'll see that in Acts 20, and give us hope. If we think hope is we get power and we force everybody to do what we think they should, that's been church history from three, ever since Constantine and even before that. That's what church history looks like. We're the good guys. Let us run things. Well, that's what Rome said. And look what happened. How many years of war? Go ahead. Yeah, great comment, Bob. It's interesting. The Marxists on the left say there should be no boundaries. They hate Acts 17.26. The New Apostolic Reformation movement says we determine the boundaries on the right. Good point. What the Bible's teaching is that there's boundaries, the left is wrong, and the boundaries are fixed by God, not men. New Apostolic Reformation's wrong. And so that's the fine line that we have to run. We vote, but God makes ultimately the decisions that we see. That's what we see in Daniel, where he is the one who brings kings up and brings kings and kingdoms down. And so we can take comfort in that. (laughs) Bob, I love it when you say, you know, you've been voting for 30 years and no one that you ever vote for wins. But, and it's the same with us, you know, it's, but the beautiful thing is God is sovereign. He's bringing this to the culmination where Christ will reign. Some people say, well, why do you live here? Well, I don't live here (laughs) to feel comfortable with, I'm here to preach Christ. Any kind of sinner needs to hear Christ, including liberal sinners Uh, yes so dear ones we have to that's why I keep saying the love of the truth is the most fantastic gift you can ever receive because those who give their authority to Antichrist would not even welcome the love of the truth they don't want to even think the love of the truth might show up that's what it says. Decomai, welcome. They'll welcome, welcome the love of the truth. And so time and time again, when something, well, that can't be. So the more I study, oh, it is. God cannot lie. It's more comforting to believe that God's in charge and he's getting us to the right place at the right time. So Paul preached that to philosophers. 
It's not fate, by the way. Well, then you believe in fatalism. No, fatalism is impersonal. I studied, I read the books of people who believe that. It's impersonal. What will be, will be. There's no just eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow we die. Fate is impersonal. This is personal. God has a saving purpose for how he runs his universe. Not an impersonal fate. Verse 27, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. Omnipresence. By the way, there is a command to seek God. There's a command to circumcise our hearts. Does this imply that people are doing it or want to do it? Seek God. None seek after God. Well, well then how do anybody seek God? Because God, I, I still like the thunderbolt from heaven. Boom. That's what happened to me. The one I wanted to destroy, suddenly I was serving. Same happened to Saul of Tarsus. Not that I have that status, but I am a sinner saved by grace. For in him we, this is omnipresence, in him we move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for you are also his children. In the sense that he created Adam and Eve, and for one man, every nation shows up. And then again with Noah, verse 29. Being then the children of God, in a general sense, by the way, that's my comment, not relational, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art, by the art and thought of man. So they had plenty of that around them while Paul was preaching. So he went into a pagan place. Separatists, in a sense of totally separating from the world and everything in the world, do not have ground to do so in the Bible. They would refuse to go anywhere where they might be defiled by some sinners. He went to a pagan temple, therefore you must endorse it. No, he went there to preach Christ at the Parthenon. Verse 30. Now, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. How can you preach repentance to pagan philosophers at Mars Hill? Well, he did, because that's what they're supposed to preach. Remember what Jesus said? Repentance, forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations, starting Jerusalem, ultimately to Rome and then elsewhere. So here he is, preview of repentance. It will go on. Paul ultimately end up going back through here. Okay, verse 31. Here is something that it blows me away. Acts 17, 31. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Every sermon has the resurrection. And then they, he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection, it says. Now, look at the verse 31, fixed day. An awful lot of our Christian friends, even conservative ones, claim that God will never keep his promise to Israel. We've been talking about that because it's just figurative. Infant baptism puts people into the family of God. 
The church is Israel. Again, that's not the church as defined by the Bible. So it says in Acts 1, when is now are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? It says that, that that is a time fixed by God's authority, right? That's later. Here's a fixed day for the future judgment. So will the people who say God will not restore Israel, even though there's a predetermined and fixed time for that, are they going to also say God will never bring judgment because he fixed a day for that? Pick and choose what you like based on political, church political, generational favoritism, charming feelings, family heritage, and so on. That's what we like because we grew up in it. And to search the scriptures and find out I wasn't told the truth by my own family, my own pastor, my own little church. It was so shocking to me, not because I became a Christian, but because I started studying science and I went to a church that said there are no miracles. God never did miracles. They were rationalists. And at 12 years old, I was to join a church. So I asked the pastor in charge of the program, well, I'm studying science and people don't walk on water and do miracles. Those are stories to make us feel better. But don't neglect your family religion. You need to... So I went and at 12 years old and by obligation did what I was supposed to do. I didn't want to be a rebellious son. But within a few years, I just finally did my poor mom. But I just said, no. And I ended up uh, playing golf with the Catholics on Sunday mornings. (laughs) Well, that's bad. (laughs) At least they went to sinner's mass. Okay, dear ones, is the church defined by Scripture or is it defined by our nice, warm, glowing feelings from generations past. Yet, what's the answer to that question? I think scripture alone. Why is it that theologians, including the ones I studied on, I love, will give you the right answers about the biblical definition of the church and have great categories, visible church, invisible church, Church universal, the church triumphant, the church universal. There's all kinds of great answers. But when it comes to applying them, the only thing that matters if I'm a fourth generation Baptist. And now what's the seminary called? Converge International. They're converging into the one world. Go ahead. That's the exact religion I grew up with. Converge is the Baptist General Conference. That's the church I grew up in. Yes. I mean, I, I was born and raised in that church. And my dad used to say, oh, I hope my daughters meet a good Baptist General Conference young man and marry him. And uh, anyhow, the, the point is, is that even the good religions that I thought was a good religion ain't so good once you realize, once you discover the gospel, you realize that the religion you came out of wasn't so good after all. Yeah, and it's really kind of sad because no one wants... uh, We're not teaching people to dishonor their parents. But we are teaching parents to not assume that people are Christian by natural generation. 
God makes Christians, we don't. We're obligated to teach the truth and to do the best job we can by God's grace of raising our children, pointing them to the scriptures and to Christianity, but we can't control the outcome. That's between people and God. I know that uh, by not only the, my experience, um, it's just one of our children is, wouldn't serve God, and now she's just loves to serve God. She's not here because of being sick today and then before that sick kids, but the other has his own world he's living in. We don't control the outcome. If you want to look at a Christian group that is better than any that's ever been at controlling the outcome, it's Rome. That system is so ingrained for so long with so many innovations, guilt, processes, one layer upon another upon another for centuries and centuries that it's almost impossible to get out without losing your family and your friends. Because that's a whole world of Christendom that doesn't know God. So remember this. Christianity is not a geographical religion based on buildings, ethnicity, um, descendants, and processes to keep people in the fold. It is based on the resurrection of Christ, the gospel, forgiveness of sins, regeneration, and that's what makes those who are Christian who believe the gospel. Yes. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, with, with these, there's so many of these different groups of people that are just so far off and everything, and we talk to people, and what's evident is that so many people create a God of their own making. I love that that phrase, a God of their own making. Yep. And I wonder if that's a violation of the first two commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that is the God of the Bible that we're to worship. And, and then no idols. Now, in the Bible, we've got people that build these things, you know. But nowadays, with our sophisticated humanity, I say that with irony, by the way, <laughs> um, they're creating, it, it seems like it's idol worship you can, you can have mental idols of yeah. the philosophers yeah. who don't even believe in the material world. You can have the idols of demons that people worship, the stoichia, or you can have the idols of the building and the processes. And see, the, the whole idea of a cathedral is to create a temple that'll feel like heaven even though you're not really there. You're still heading to hell cathedrals, it's hard to think that they're anything but a, 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 a abomination. How could you justify a cathedral? Have you ever seen a service in a really massive cathedral? How hard is it? I'm not saying someone couldn't actually get into the middle of the biggest cathedral and preach the truth. But even when that happens, if you've ever been there, your mind and your eyes are going everywhere else. Everything's pointing you away from the Word of God. Up here, up there, big you know, stacks for the 
pipe organ, the windows, the background. You're everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And somebody might be there reading out of the prayer book something that's true. Who hears it? Who hears it? Somebody could. They could really focus and hear what's said, if it's even right. Why would you create all that money to build something that takes everyone's mind off of the truth of the gospel? So we need to preach the truth. Yes. Yeah, and I was just going to say that, and I know I'm singing to the choir here, but this is scripture alone, period. It's our authority of how to live and how to be saved. And too many people are, like you're saying, driven away from that. And we have a lot of imperatives in Scripture, like to love one another. They'll know you're Christians by your love. We're to encourage one another. These are imperatives. Go do these things, whether you feel like it or not. And just like Israel of old, you know, they were still worshiping in Samaria. They were still going to the temple. and But they had their heart was far from the Lord, this relational thing that you're talking about. So Jesus says that he is going to judge us by these words why wouldn't we want to teach these people the words yes. why was Tyndale martyred because he wanted to do that yeah in and, a language they could understand yes so it's I mean you know and this is just you know it is so blanketed as a problem across all of the church you know the people yeah. don't take the word serious yeah. there are those who claim that the point of the great commission is to make Christendom bigger Somebody handed oh, what was that? Whoa. Something's going on. Oh, no, 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 go back, don't do that. All right, I think it's uh, Providence telling me to go to the next slide. (laughs) Here we go. Here we go, progress. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know, now this is the elders from Ephesus, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Now in Ephesus, he started as usual with the synagogue and then uh, synagogue, the model of the synagogue is more what the church is organized like than the temple. So I was talking about cathedrals. Cathedrals are trying to create temple Judaism now, only even better or bigger or more impressive. But the church is more like the synagogue where people gather without a huge structure and is focused on the study of the word. Now, um, verse 31 specifies three years of ministry. So he had three years of ministry in Ephesus. And this speech, now the first speech was from Acts 13, the longest one in Acts, in a synagogue. The one we just read is the longest one in Acts to the Greeks. This is the longest one to the church. So if we want to understand how the apostles understood the church we will study Paul's speech in Acts 20 and learn as much as we can. Really stay focused. I've already preached through Ephesians, and I hope we did a lot of study, and hopefully 
got it accurate. You could always judge whether we interpret it properly, but Ephesians is important. And then Eric went through one or two Timothy, Second Timothy 2 is important. Because these are, this is where this is revealed. Verse 31 specifies three years of ministry. This is the longest speech to Christians in Acts, and it's exemplary of godly ministry. Now, during the time that um, I, I had hours and hours a couple of weeks ago in the hospital, so I read a lot more details than I normally would have time to. Dr. Schnabel has an excellent commentary on Acts, by the way. And he gives six qualities revealed in these verses about ministry. Number one is public. I was with you the whole time. And there were the Jews, the Greeks, various things. So ministry is public. As much as possible, every once in a while, people will be driven underground. But we want our ministry to be public so that what we're doing is clear. And if we, by God's grace, live uh, lives that would reflect the gospel, people need to see that. The message needs to be heard, and God will use that. First of all, public ministry. Second, corporate. It's corporate ministry. I was with you, with various people that were involved. There wasn't some select group that got to hear the real thing, and then others got something else. We were thinking of uh, the John Ankerberg tapes years ago when we started doing apologetics research. There was a men's meeting. It was in the 80s and 90s. The group I was with was on 24th and Nicollet. And we went on Saturday mornings to watch Ankerberg, and he was able to get people that were top officials in Mormonism, Jehovah Witness, just about everything out there, including some of the, I don't know what they're called, patriarchs. What are they in the Mormons? People that most Mormons have never heard of. And what you find out is that in most of the cults, the insiders are very few, and they run everything. And the common people that slave for the cult have no clue even what they're supposed to believe. The only thing they know, what they're supposed to do, how much they're supposed to give, and what they can't do. You can't drink coffee if you're a Seventh-day Adventist. You can't do this, you can't do that. They're very good at binding. And, uh, and then, of course, the liberties come for the top people that do whatever they want in some cases. But here, this is not some select group that knows what's going on and everybody else doesn't. It's corporate. It's public. So the teaching we put out there, we're to hear, we're to listen, because we believe in the authority of Scripture, priesthood of every believer. It's exemplary. I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, Paul said. Meaning this, he didn't carve out special status honor for himself. We've seen that a lot in 1 Corinthians. That was one of their main errors. Status honor. A few weeks ago, we, did, we walked through um, Luke, where when God's glory is revealed, 
not long later, they're arguing who's the greatest. Last Supper, they're arguing who's the greatest. The argument about who's the greatest is in the background of Luke-Acts as a warning about what can destroy the church. And then later in Acts, the people that are false are known as the great power of God. Simon the sorcerer, the false teachers, and so on. But the people who would be the apostles, evangelists, teachers, are humble servants who are there to not as gain status for themselves in the eyes of religious people, but to serve Christ. And then I was, I was with you the whole time, corporate, serving the Lord, serving, there's uh, a word for slaving, literally, to loss a slave. Here is a, uh, a noun as a participle, slaving, um, and his service was selfless, which he also mentions in Philippians 2.3, Ephesians 4.2. Let me read that. Philippians 2.3. This is what's taught. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's the attitude of Christian service. Regard one another is more important than yourselves. And that simply means, and I think it helps me the most getting my mind around this, is Ephesians 3 that we saw in Ephesians 4. But remember the judgment? We don't know who's given the greatest gifts and talents. And whatever service any of us does, we do is under the Lord that's determined by the Lord later. What's important, we might have a hierarchy, but the Lord determines who served and what the reward is. We'll see that as we get later in 1 Corinthians. So in Ephesians 4, 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, Ephesians 4, 2. So Paul lived that way, and therefore, these elders from Ephesus saw the apostle living the thing that he called them to do as elders in the church. Showing tolerance for one another in love, humility, and gentleness. It says in Luke 22, 26, and 27, but it is not, but it is not this way with you. That is like the Gentiles. But Jesus said, but the one who is the greatest among you must be like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines? But I'm among you as one who serves. Jesus came to serve. And so this is illustrated in Luke Acts. So many places, so many teachings, so many personal examples parables, things that happen, including right here. One of my favorite is when they have a big dinner and they have places of honor and a prostitute from the street comes in and weeps on Jesus' seat. And the self-righteous are saying, well, he's not a prophet. He knows who this is. 
who's forgiven the most. So there is what we have. So this is exemplary. Got a couple, one more thing besides selfless, embattled. But trials came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Because there's a battle, you don't have proof that it's not valid. Many times the truth is embattled. The fact is it often is. So he's embattled and rejected. So that's what we learn from that verse. Any comments on this? Here they are. I was going to make a slide, but I'm more, I don't know. I have no excuse. I could have. <laughs> I just didn't get to. Well, yeah, besides that, I didn't have the computer with me at the hospital when I was getting the notes. Schnabel, six qualities. Number one, public. Two, corporate. Three, exemplary. Four, subservient. Five, selfless. Six, embattled. That's what we learn from these verses about Paul's ministry in Ephesus that he recalls in the hearing of the elders that he brought down to Miletus. Yes, Eric. One thing I was thinking about is you were talking about public, how our ministry should be public, and amen for that. I was thinking of Romans 3.25 where it talks about Christ being displayed publicly as a propitiation. And the interesting thing with that is prior to that in Judaism, you had the Holy of Holies where only once a year and one man could see it, the, the high priest. And yet when Christ is displayed as a propitiation, the ultimate propitiation, it's open for all to see. The resurrection, there's over 500 people at one time that saw it. Yeah, public and, witness. And a public witness. So, yeah. yeah, I just wanted to connect that. It's a very good point that you P- made there. Public truth. Yeah, amen. Yes, sir. One of the observation <clears throat> about the uh, idea of a compatibility. We were talking about that. Uh, at the end of the verse, it says, uh, Lord, with all humility, with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Sometimes the church really prospers under adversity because people realize, you know, the, the black and the white, you know, what's, what's, what's at loss and what's being lo- lost. So although the, the plots of the Jews, it sounds as a very much of the negative, sometimes the Lord can even use that, I'm thinking. Yeah, actually, that this book I'm mentioning, um, I'm a slow reader. It took 50 years to get through it. I gave up for 49 of them. Um, frankly, that's church history. People that find the true gospel and fellowship will start doing it, gathering. And if you have uh, institutional church that's approved by the state in some way or part of the state religion, whatever, will be the first to attack people who are clinging to Christ in the gospel. It's the main thesis. I didn't realize that F.F. Bruce wrote the foreword until I pulled this out of... I don't know how this stayed with me 50 years. Somehow I got from this place, little apartment over here to here to here, into our home, and I read it 50 years later. Um, it's just what I need now. 
I don't think church history does much other than to explain to it. It does a lot, but explains what apostasy looks like and how hard it is to cleave to the basic authority of Scripture, the facts of the gospel, the high priesthood of Jesus, the priesthood of every believer, and the means that God uses to sanctify his people and has done so since the very first days. It hasn't really changed. It hasn't really changed. And it's way simpler than we might think. And I'm not saying the categories haven't been defined by um, evangelical theologians. They have. I'm saying the categories aren't applied to very many situations. So I don't have to invent new categories. You still have the visible, the invisible church. But it would be easy to say this and be, I think, very accurate. Right now, God's elect are scattered throughout Christendom. And just the reports of the, from the evangelists, and I appreciate getting those reports, indicate that every once in a while, you run across a believer was in this great big huge thing and maybe the one or two that are and I when I was uh, traveling um, with books in the whatever 15 years ago there would be a group of people in a really massive church that want somebody to come and preach the truth to them and they sometimes could even get permission to use a place at the church I remember one time I was going to this big evangelical church because a fellow asked me to debate about the sovereignty of God. And um, so he had chosen TULIP, which everybody goes to. And I, I don't care about TULIP, but that's... Uh, so we, we go to do it. Well, I get there, and they had the power team going on. So I said, well, is it, where's the meeting? I'm supposed to be here for this event. Well, here's all these people packing in to see, I don't know exactly what they were going to do, but it was really not gospel. But here, oh, I think it was over here. And here's like 15 people. And we started talking about salvation and how it is that some are saved and others are not. And interesting, we weren't in the power team or whoever they were. I was way too skinny to be in them. <laughs> whatever that was so um, dear ones next week we'll go here and this is where I want to give a little preview to get, hopefully get, get us more interested notice he says I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and so I'll have some more points here but profitable would mean there are things that God's revealed, and they're revealed because they're for our benefit. And we go back to repentance and faith, but that doesn't mean it's truncated so that there's no details. Because if you read, we went through the book of Ephesians. There's plenty to learn. And he later, on the same speech, will talk about the whole purpose of God, 
whole counsel of God. It's amazing how things get truncated by little groups that don't want to hear anything but the one thing they think is important. Someone contacted me and said, well, you're of a group that there's some passage in Matthew that's the only thing that matters. You go out two by two and nobody gets to have any money. And if anybody has money, it's proof that they're evil. No matter what they preach. Because they don't want to learn anything outside of this little part. But there's a lot that's profitable revealed in the whole Bible that we need to learn. And so cults will narrow this down on whether that's prop in a, in a broadest sense of the term cult. So this is all, this is what we know, and you stay right here in this. But the categories are the secret things belong to God, the things revealed are for us and for our children, as in Deuteronomy 29, 29, right? And so next week we'll start with that. So what is declared during those three years was not leaving out what's profitable, which you later will call the whole counsel of God. And so the thing that causes the most confusion is that the majority of preachers skip, 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 and some topics will never be touched. Never be touched. And then when and some of the discernment folk get very eccentric because they've never sat under expository Bible teaching. And they don't want to hear the parts that their preachers have always skipped. And so if you can't skip uh, the next time I preach, I have asked the area, I've got some very distasteful material. Now, it's from the Bible, but it's how evil they were in Corinth. And I don't know how to preach it. And so you can look, you can, maybe you have wisdom. First Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. It's horrible what was going on. And I'm not going to skip it, but I need wisdom to how to preach it too. A lot of wisdom. But we can't not preach something that God's revealed. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for we can, the fact that we can gather. Pray for the many people who have chick, sick children or sick adults, people suffering and hurting. Pray for my wife, Diane, as she's recovering from surgery. And give us boldness that we may proclaim your word faithfully, despite the fact there's opposition. We thank you for the example we have here from the book of Acts. Thank you, Lord. We pray for Eric. Did you give him wisdom as he preaches to us today? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. <laughs>